0: Restaurant Unstoppable episode 546 with Lucas Sin. So when I was first learning how
1: to cook, one of the chefs used to tell me that the only way you're going to learn how to exist and survive in the restaurant industry is to figure out what you want to learn, who you're going to learn it from, and whether they're the best in the world. And you're going to ask them, may I learn X from you? But the better piece of advice is the second half of this, which is if you go and you ask them to teach you something, and they say no, you ask the second best. <laughs> and if they say no, then you go to the third best. And honestly, that actually is how I believe I learned how to cook.
0: Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and in today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become Unstoppable. Cashflow. It's something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing, and worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, next month, go to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out RestaurantEthics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out EthicsSuite.com slash RestaurantUnstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssweet.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Lucas Sin, my man, Chef Lucas. Lucas Sin. Are you feeling unstoppable today? I suppose I am. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So hailing from Hong Kong, food has always been at the center of Lucas Sin's life. Since the age of 16, Sin has been running kitchens and pop-ups. As a matter of fact, while attending Yale University, Sin founded Y Pop-Up. And After graduation, Sin uh, spearheaded launching Junza Kitchen located in New York City. Three years later, the concept has grown to three locations and you guys seem to be going strong. I can't wait to dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us so
1: when I was first learning how to cook one of the chefs used to tell me that the only way you're going to learn how to exist and survive in the restaurant industry is to figure out what you want to learn who you're going to learn it from and whether they're the best in the world. And you're going to ask them, may I learn X from you? Oh, man. Who told you that? Francisco McGoya, oh, chef man. of modernist Cuisine. That is incredible advice, dude. But the better piece of advice is the second half of this, which is if you go and you ask them to teach you something and they say no, you ask the second best. (laughs) If they say no, then you go to the third best. And honestly, that actually is how I believe I learned how to cook.
0: Yeah, you know, and the truth is, like now has never been a better time to want to learn how to cook or be a chef or get into the restaurant industry because there's so many restaurants out there right now and such little help. Absolutely. And there's so many people, talented people, that are willing to teach. So uh, get out there, find out who's ever killing it in your community, and join their team learn from them. Uh, That's the way to go. I love the way you start. This thing off. So, where did it all start for you? When did you know you're going to commit your life to food and beverage? There's the story that people
1: want to hear, and that story goes something along the lines of Oh, my grandmother is a cook, which is true. My grandmother cooked at a mahjong parlor. She was a tremendous cook. She was really, really good at it, and she did that for life. Um, that's usually how I begin, you know. Talking to journalists who don't, you know, really want to <laughs> dig all the way into it—that's an easy story. Well, we're
0: here for an hour and twenty <laughs> minutes, man. I'm gonna—I'm digging for the good stuff.
1: Yeah, I wish I could tell you for a fact that my grandmother cooking in the mahjong parlor in Hong Kong is a reason why I'm a cook today, but that's just not quite true because maybe the most important thing she's ever said to me is don't become a cook so <laughs> yes, why didn't you listen to her? <laughs> um, because it's a totally different landscape now and I think we're doing it for different reasons there, back in the day there's a lot of cooks especially in Chinese culture um, that cook because that's what they're supposed to do and that's really the only thing that they can do I feel a similar motivation today as in we open Chinese restaurants in places like New York and New Haven because that's the only thing we can do that's what we're supposed to do right now but it's not so much just because of the coin. It's more about spreading culture, telling stories, and complicating the dialogue that surrounds Chinese food. Um, my core, core, core belief is Chinese food is the best food in the world. People need to know about it. People need to complicate their understanding about it. They can see the world in a different way if they can appreciate the diversity and the color within Chinese food. So all we're trying to do is just you know, introduce like cool types of Chinese food people don't really know about, to the American public, um, and to you know, slowly train their palates so that they too believe that Chinese food is the best food in the world.
0: So that's kind of your mission statement to this day. But let's let's bring it back to when you started like, living intentionally. I mean, 16 years old. I'll be honest, man. When, uh, when you first came across my radar, I was working with your publicist. I was working uh, on lining up somebody up in Boston, and she said, you got to check out my boy Lucas down in New York City. Mm-hmm. And she gave me your profile. And the first cool. thing I, I zoomed in on was... Uh, Yale graduate year 2015 I was like what the hell is this like (laughs) three years out of Yale University like who is this kid Uh, I was like whatever like I'm going to look into this 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 could be really interesting and at first I was like what am I doing Uh, but now like after doing some research and seeing your story Mm -hmm. 16 years old Mm -hmm. you started your first restaurant Um, that's like unheard of man Uh, you're like a 10 year seasoned (laughs) veteran at the age of like what 25 yeah i'm 25 yeah so you have a really unique story so bring us to that point 16 years old what's going through your mind so
1: we opened a restaurant when we were 16 in hong kong where i'm from uh we opened it in an abandoned newspaper factory it was me and a couple of friends the reason why we did it was why not really it was our last summer there all of us were going to go to school abroad probably and we all liked food and we, we said oh we should just try to do this the wonderful thing is, in Hong Kong, there's a culture of private kitchens, and what private kitchens are are um, private kitchens are kind of the reaction of chefs against raising rent. So uh, the, the reaction rent. of
0: chefs. Say that one more time. Um, private
1: kitchens are kind of a, a reaction of Hong Kong chefs to um, rising rent. Okay. Because not everybody can afford to build a restaurant anymore, right? Okay. And they want to make food; and it's their source of income. So they have people come through to their apartments one table between like 10 and 20 people, I'd say. And they just, people eat whatever the chef wants to cook. And in all these high-rises in Hong Kong, that's how a lot of cooks learn how to cook in the first way and develop a sense of cuisine and such. And so I was a big fan of these, and most of my first kitchen jobs were in private kitchens. Um, but we decided to open one on our own when we were 16. Bunch of kids, abandoned newspaper factory, and the way it worked was we would have a shuttle, People would meet at a certain point, we'd get on the shuttle, we'd move that shuttle all the way to the newspaper factory, we'd get off and look, <laughs> where the do hell they, are where we? They move? It's like the edge of the island, right? So, okay. Um, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes, but it's dark. They're walking up the staircase and to lift all this stuff. And then they walk in and they see a wine cellar and we're serving them in the wine cellar, but attached to this wine cellar is a SEMRI pro kitchen. So we serve 13 courses. Was it it.
0: the kitchen just there? Was it like a Yeah, so commercial? somebody
1: owned it. Somebody um, had changed this um, old newspaper space into a wine cellar. Okay. And so we served it in that wine cellar. And then the food was just, I mean, we call it Hong Kong food. Um, but we were really mostly interested in looking at the intersection between cultures, Japanese food, Korean food, Southern Chinese food, Northern Chinese food, Western food, and in Hong Kong specifically. So we served, you know, all this food. We kind of like all bullshit about wine. We all you know, learned how to pull three plates at once, and at first you're just serving your teachers, and then your friends' parents, and then before you know it, you're actually doing this, like, summer after summer. There's strangers showing up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's kind of nuts, obviously. Totally illicit, like, you know.
0: So, when did you come to the States? What year was it? Or how old Uh, were you? I was 18. 18? So, two years later. You were doing the the kitchen in Hong Kong, the pop-up, for two years, solid. Did you guys... Like so, like, how did that have to dissolve? Did it continue going on after you no, left? No, right?
1: no, 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 it didn't. Because um, all of us went off to college. But what happened was, um, I was at Yale. I was in biology class. But I before me- we get to oh, the sorry, Yale, no, no.
0: I'm just, I'm a little curious. Uh, like, what about regulations? Like, I mean, I know I'm sure Hong Kong regulations sure. are different than uh, the states. Yeah. But like, did you have to jump the no, roots, or did you just do it? No, but they're
1: similarly strict. But you just do it. <laughs> so
0: you didn't get any it's like approval more or? likely than
1: anything else this is going to be the theme today just went ahead and did it you know there's no real reason not yeah. to so um, i mean uh, you do it under the radar um, and um, nobody can stop you from paying your friend to cook you dinner yeah um, so that's kind of the uh, you know. That's did you ever get into trouble with narrative. people
0: coming in saying you're not licensed or you don't have the right uh, permits for this, or did that ever come up? Not in Hong
1: Kong. Okay. A little bit <laughs> later on, certainly in New Haven, Connecticut. But I just,
0: I mean, I gotta, I have to just you know make an example of you of exactly what you said. Just do it, right? Like, right. just start. We we let too many things get in the way of just starting. But if we just pull the trigger and you know ready fire aim right mm-hmm. pull the trigger see where the, the bullet hits the target correct pull again right <laughs> yeah, until absolutely. you until you hit the bullseye and uh who knows what's going to happen but if you don't start then you'll never make those yeah. steps in the right direction so <laughs> uh why yale how did you do settle on yale uh that's the school i applied to
1: so i went there um Wonderful. I mean, everybody knows it's a good school, so you go because it's a good school. A kid from Hong Kong—that's where you want to go to school. Okay. Um, But after you've stayed in Yale and, in my opinion, more importantly, New Haven for a little while, you find the magic of entrepreneurial spirits. You find the 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 importance of you know pop up style thinking, like that combination of creativity and recklessness um, is has very much defined the way we build restaurants today.
0: Okay, so. You kind of carried over the, your whole pop up theme. Yeah, and you started uh, why pop up, right? Sure. Yes. So, what was that? Like, take us through that How whole that the purpose of that. Yeah. Why did you guys yeah. do this?
1: I mean, um, I, I got to Yale, and I think I had a little bit of a reputation for having done this in Hong Kong. And somebody reads about this and says, "Hey, Lucas, um, you've been cooking and opening, you know, restaurants in Hong Kong like a year ago when you were a kid." <laughs> <laughs> You're 18 now. We should keep doing it. Yeah, you're men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're like, okay, we will keep doing it. And then we, the, <laughs> the first thing we did was an instant noodle pop-up in my room.
0: Okay. The way that works In your dorm room. In our dorm room. Okay.
1: And if you had a favorite brand of instant noodles, you would bring that to the dorm. If not, I had my preferred brand. I had a bunch. And then I would make, you know, three broths. Um, yeah, some of them like traditional tonkotsu. Some of them like soy milk dashi. We made a French onion soup one. We had special that sort of thing. We sous vide a bunch of you know pork belly and um, chicken and, and fried shallots and you you know just have all these toppings and you can kind of like build your own. Charge people five bucks. Okay. Build
0: so they're they're noodle. bringing the, the pasta. <laughs> yeah. you're still we You open it, you know, yeah, you're basically exactly. Charging <laughs> them for the, the soup. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and it was quite fun. Um, and people were interested because. Uh, we called it the Underground Noodle Collective. Um, the students were like, <laughs> "What is happening here? Does the noodles are kind of good."
0: You know all this how stuff. Much, and then, how much did it cost? Sorry, keep going. Keep five, five bucks. Five bucks. Five, well, we how much did it $5. cost for you? How much overhead was there for you? You had your sous vide. I'm assuming that was probably the most expensive thing. <laughs> but that's in your the kitchen,
1: of, that's the type of thing that you just have in your room because you're a food nerd. <laughs> yeah. when you get to college. <laughs> But it kind of spiraled out of control because after that, we started doing different pop-ups. Um, and the theory was every semester, we'd have a different team of students. And every semester, the theme would be set by those students. So it was a different pop-up every semester. Um, the first one was that instant noodle one. And then we moved quickly to, like, drunk Japanese food, like izakaya food. That's and true. then we moved on to, you know, like, full-on tasting menus. Um, like seven courses um, some of them silly like we do you know the seven stages of a relationship and you know call it a day or we would do things like portuguese food for for, for no reason you okay know? and that was a really good for us for us students it's a really good way to explore things we were interested in cultural and historical narratives yeah um, and, and like the creative sort of more creative side of things it's really interesting to see all these like history and biology and chemistry and like philosophy students we spend all their time in their head, Monday to Friday, right? Yeah. But come Friday, you're running a pop-up. You have to learn how to hold a brew. <laughs> you have to learn how to wash dishes quicker than you did at mom's house. So it's all sort of fun. Um, and the Yale Daily News, the, the school newspaper, had um, put us in the centerfold and said, oh, you know, these kids are doing this thing in the dorms. They're serving 200 people every weekend. Um, that's when we got our first call from the health department. <laughs> hey, dude, read right about you. Good job. Like, really like what you're doing. But I uh, just want you to know that um, serving 200 kids uh, without a license in a room <laughs> in the student kitchen is just, you know, uh, illegal. So you're going to have to stop doing what you're going to do. Um, and obviously, we didn't stop doing it because it was so much fun. And um, there are enough people in, uh, around you know, the university and the community that supported us enough that wanted to keep it alive. So they called me during, I was in English class, I got a call from somebody, but I can't tell you who it is now. <laughs> but she's like, Lucas, I'll do everything I can to protect you and your friends. <laughs> you're like so cool you guys can keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and so we find this loophole, we find a way around it. Um, and then, thank God, it was causing enough trouble that I had finally graduated and left. Um, so that we you know, yeah. stopped you know, being a nuisance <laughs> for the university. But it was so much fun. So you said there was teams? Was yeah. it like a competition? Um, th- there were also competitions on, uh, on the side. Um, But uh, mostly we would um, hold auditions as you would for a sports team. Okay. And then people would come in and we'd say, hey, you have 20 minutes. Your secret ingredient is Taco Bell sauce. Impress me. And then you just pick the five best cooks.
0: Okay. And then that night, they get to serve you. Right. your audience. You yeah, exactly. Guests. And
1: then we'd start working on the restaurant concept and eventually we would just um, keep doing the restaurants.
0: So once you found somebody you won, they would they, they would do a spin off and then they would, and they would yeah, retain and that exactly. concept?
1: So, so we spent a couple of weeks and I teach them everything I know about cooking. Okay. Um, mostly, you know, uh, how to stand, how to wear an apron. Don't cut yourself on the mandolin, stuff like this, right? Yeah. And then um, once they've gotten these basic skills then we would sit down, as you would when you're planning a restaurant, I assume. Yeah. Is think about what type of concept, um, what the logo might look like, what you're gonna call it, what type of menu you wanna serve, how often you wanna So to you're basically
0: open. like teaching like a restaurant design, like restaurant one oh one. I should have had you I on like, never the, done this before. They should right? have been paying you. <laughs> I was
1: doing it with everybody. The only difference was I had, you know, a total of um, I don't know. A couple months of restaurant experience. You know? yeah. um, because the the key was that every single uh, break, every single summer and winter, I was cooking in restaurants, mostly in Japan, and that's how I uh, learned. So um, how many cuisine. At, at what at
0: one point? How many different concept pop up concepts were running at one time?
1: Be between one and three, usually three. Okay. So Friday would be let's say a tasting menu. Saturday would be like, a gastropub type of thing. And then Sundays we do like pastries and coffees. At, like, and an you are doing this
0: all out of your dorm room? Uh,
1: in um, the basement. Okay. Some of them in <laughs> the dorm art galleries. Some of them in the room itself. Okay. You know, wherever you could <laughs> slot in the kitchen and, you know, make it happen. And what I'm most proud of, I suppose, is why Pop-Up to this day it exists. I got a text the other day from the person who's still doing it. From, yeah. From the current president of so the group. So it's still going on. Yeah. To say, that's in New awesome. Haven at Yale. And they're doing a bruschetta, Papa, and it's it just things on toast.
0: Oh my like this is awesome! <laughs> like, that's
1: not how I envisioned this would go, but they're still doing it. You know, yeah, but you and like, started it. it exactly, so, to it's know so that It's fun. still going on. Um, it's pretty awesome. I mean, um, I I have to. I mean, we have to thank Yale for being such a wonderful community, um, especially in the food world. And like in the last couple of years, that especially the undergraduate community has really embraced the passion for food and from from all perspectives, not only from cooking but also. Know, agriculture, sustainability, food systems, and such. And it's really great to have such an open-minded university that creates that community that will fuel undergrads to to, to you know, do crazy, creative things. Um, and what one really wonderful thing is because New Haven's a small city, and so much of it is Yale itself. Um, New Haven felt some of that energy too. And soon, when we opened our first Junza, our first restaurant in New Haven, there started. Uh, a, a pop-up scene sort of, like, started happening. There were ramen pop-ups. There was a, um, we did the grilled cheese pop-up. There was a, um, some restaurant was doing a fried chicken pop-up. And then, God forbid, a couple years ago, bruschetta pop-up <laughs>
0: in a jazz bar best percent I've ever had. So what advice do you have for somebody out there who's thinking about doing a pop-up? What things sure. do they need to consider? If you Knowing what you know about today, if, and you can't use the example of being in college, or maybe if you're listening mm. to this and you are in college, like, <laughs> whatever, but if somebody wanted to start a pop-up, what approach would you? What advice would they give? Them? Like if they're asking you right now, you right. know, Lucas, what advice do you have for me just yeah. starting a pop-up? What would you take, say to them? Um, I think the most
1: important thing is to figure out why you're doing that pop-up. Yep. Um, a lot of chefs now use pop-ups, for example, to test out dishes or ideas or restaurant concepts to see how, how, how people like yeah. feedback. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And if that's the case, then you would have to design your pop up specifically to collect data or answers to the questions you have about your own concept. Um, if you're just doing it for fun, um, then you have to figure out what is the most fun to you, and. Keep doing that every weekend because you're not going to do it if it's not fun. If you aren't doing it for money, then you have to figure out your your business plan, basically, right? So, I mean, for us back in the day, it was all for fun. So we just had to ask ourselves, what is the most all fun for thing fun? You were
0: making a thousand bucks a night, <laughs> so, the, so,
1: what was wonderful about it is our our business model was this simple: whatever we charge you as a guest, as a customer, half of it will go to costs the other half would go to a nice dinner for everybody in the team oh that's cool (laughs) like take the train down to new york and go to mumufuku or whatever it was you know so uh but yeah so once you figure out that first step what the purpose of this pop-up is then you can start building your model and start figuring out what you have to do and after that the most important um uh, piece of advice probably is you have to be super detail oriented the same way you are in a brick and mortar kitchen um the guest experience every aspect of it needs to be well controlled all your recipes need to be well developed and they need to be good good food has to be good good service has to be good and that all comes from being detail oriented
0: yeah beautiful stuff uh what about technology i mean what if people are charging i mean you guys Mm -hmm. didn't use technology but what are you what are you seeing other people in the pop-up world using as far as how to uh you know, m- manage this, uh, schedule all this stuff, charge your, your, your guests? Yeah. What, what technology would you
1: recommend? Um, uh, well, back in the day, we, I mean, as you might imagine, doing this at the university means you're doing it with a bunch of nerds. So we code our own spreadsheets that, you know, our reservation systems and such. However, um, the most important thing is to get the word out. Um, I love word of mouth. I think it's the most powerful way to get somebody into a restaurant to get them to have the right expectations before the meal begins. Um, but to harness that word of mouth um, through social media or Eventbrite or whatever it is, that's really important to understand um, and to hit your critical mass to make sure that you have the right energy and the right um, So what, what social media strategy were you using? Um, well... I can't use myself as an example so you, because, again, <laughs> it was a little bit yeah, illicit, yeah, right? Yeah, so the one condition upon us keep doing this was, Lucas, don't tell anyone you're doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, I mean, um, social media for um, pop-ups are amazing because um, nowadays we live in a world where if you're a chef and you see a dish on Instagram, you can make it basically instantly. You don't need the recipe or anything. Um, and the way information travels means if you're doing something dope, people are going to hear about it. Yeah. Um, and it 's going to get shared it 's going to get liked it 's going to be retweeted reposted. I think
0: that statement's true for anything though like just don 't focus on driving people in, just focus on being yeah. awesome. Do yeah, something truly exactly. amazing and unique, yeah. and if you are great, if you put that energy into right. being great, people will find out exactly it will travel naturally. people
1: will talk about it
0: so um, one thing i 'm curious about and one of the, the great things about pop ups it 's a great like you mentioned earlier it 's a great way to, to test a concept to see if you have any traction <laughs> uh, and to to get your name out there. Uh, do you think that your uh, success with the pop-ups with the community at Yale had an influence? With the, the first location was in uh, New Haven, yeah. New Haven. So, did you get some carryover? Yeah. Okay, so talk to us about how you can develop a tribe, right? right? You can grow a tribe, you can grow a following, and that will prime the engine for your first restaurant. It was
1: really important for us to open the restaurant in the city that we loved the most and we knew the most. Why is that so important? Um, Well, part of it was because everybody who was in the founding team of Chenzi was an immigrant and new to the country. So we had to find somewhere we were familiar with. Living the dream. Yeah, sort of. Yes, just just (laughs) in some ways, just as the um, early Chinese immigrants um, felt when they came to the U.S., but in New Haven, um, we identified that um, as a small city, it's incredibly diverse and it's incredibly accepting of new ideas. So to say, to, uh, open a, to open not only a Chinese restaurant but to open a northern Chinese restaurant and nobody knows what that means, um, is a, it's a bit of a risk. And so we wanted to do it somewhere where we knew we could get you know the right feedback, where we could um, figure out whether what we were doing was correct. Um, and on top of that... Uh, the other thing that was great about New Haven was because I had, doing the, had been doing these pop-ups, we implemented some of the things we learned from pop-ups and we liked from pop-ups to a brick-and-mortar restaurant. Namely, uh, even to this day, Junzi, during the day, we serve fast, casual, northern Chinese food, build-your-own type of thing. But at night, the whole restaurant transforms into what we call after hours, which is late night. And that's just drunk food, Right. I mean, that's, um, the chicken wings, fried do chicken, fried rice. And um, we do that this year in the weekends. Okay. Um, in New Haven, our menu is a little bit different and we do, you know, scallion pancakes with like fried chicken in the middle with like pickles and cucumbers and oh, stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, but that's because, um, when I first met everybody else who I worked with, they saw me at the Popham and we were slinging quesadillas and burgers like at super low cost just to kids and you could see the way the students would come to a place to like convene and hang out and have a good time and late night that was so important to us to um, cover the whole spectrum of the day so we wanted to serve lunch dinner and late night so that junza could be a gathering point for people no matter what time of day it was beautiful
0: man so what advice do you have for somebody uh man There's so many different ways we can go right now. It's like what direction? Like, choose your own one of those books, like, you have to choose which path to go down. Um, So, I mean, I'm kind of curious. You said you you do all these different things, but how do you brand yourself? I mean, one of the cool things about doing the pop up is you get to find out what lane you want. Like, you get to to experiment and and to find out what really resonates with you. Um, You chose to do like authentic northern Chinese food uh, <laughs> that's your brand but you also do the, all the other stuff how do you yeah. do all the other stuff and not confuse the customer I guess this is one thing I'm curious
1: about. I end up confusing myself a lot yeah. too <laughs> I mean you can so to jump back a little bit so to my to my story right I'm a kid from Hong Kong yeah I'm the chef of a restaurant that serves northern Chinese food Hong Kong's not in the north that's confusing enough I did all my training in Japan mostly high-end Japanese food um, and but I also spent some time in like sort of like modernist molecular places, Seattle, um, in New York, cuisine, Seattle, yeah. yeah, and modernist cuisine with Francisco and all this stuff. Um, it's all over the place, and so I struggle a lot with defining my own sort of brand as well.
0: Twenty five years old, I man. Yeah, but I like this will come. We'll t- you're, you're still discovering. You're one learning. Thing, it. One
1: thing that Francisco did tell me about. Um, the chef of modernist cuisine again, who gave us our first mantra, he said, you're going to have to figure out what you're good at and just do that thing first. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? And I'm just going to tell him, I'll I'll tell you the story as best I remember, right? He said, this is like, apart from the learn from the best and then move down the list, the second thing you have to do is um, take the eclair. Uh, Francisco's pastry chef. Yeah. Take the eclair. Um, Think about the best eclair on the, like on earth. Like have that in your mind and then think about the best eclair that you've actually had in real life what you want to do is you want to make eclairs all day until you make something that um, exceeds in quality both of those things you want to make an eclair one day, put it in your mouth, eat it and you think to yourself wow, this is the best eclair not only is this the best eclair I've ever had but this is the best eclair I can imagine Okay. Right. (laughs) if you hit that point then you're good then you don't have to be the eclair guy anymore until you get there. Yeah. Keep doing that yeah. thing. So I asked myself, I was like, dang, like what, what do I want to like really um like get really, really good at? And the first thing was um stir fried cabbage. It's like I'm just gonna be the stir fried cabbage guy. Stir fried
0: cabbage. <laughs> okay. I was like, I've had
1: this great stir fried cabbage at the Sichuan restaurant, it had a little bit of chili peppers in there, it was like so fragrant and aromatic and such a humble vegetable that it was brought to life. And until to this day for the last three years, I've tried to brand myself as the stir fried cabbage guy. The stir-fried cabbage guy, I realize, doesn't really catch on as well. But, it, but thinking about what that cabbage means, it's uh, assembly of the most important techniques in Chinese cooking. So what you end up being is somebody who wants to spread the word about Chinese technique, Chinese cooking technique, Chinese cooking culture. Um, in the cabbage itself, um, there's a stock It's quite specific. It's called a superior broth. Um, there's a stir-fry itself that's wok technique. And then there's an understanding of basic um, uh, flavor profiles that are unique to Chinese cooking in terms of Sichuan peppercorns with the chilies and then, and the ginger and the garlic and scallion and those sorts of things. And once I dove into what my eclair truly idealistically was constituted of, I realized, oh, it's about building... Chinese cooking and Chinese cooking technique. And so, um, through all the pop-ups that we do, all the late night, the daily stuff, as well as these tasting menus that I do every month called Chef's Table, all of it comes down to what is Chinese technique and how... Is, so that this is going like to your, be you, your' continued in education like, yeah you're, you're, you're constantly updating yeah. like what like what you're I, most excited about I guess
0: that makes sense because you 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 have your business uh Junza and sure. that's paying the bills right but mm-hmm. you can only do that so often right. as a chef you need to create you need to you need <laughs> to have that that creative outlet so yeah. at night you get to express that you have an you know a place to put this energy right this creative energy and that to- that makes complete sense and, and you love- want that go, creative
1: go you want that creative energy too. Um, relate to what you do during the day too. You like the thing that pays the bills, so to speak, should also be um, that mission. There should be compatible with the creative stuff.
0: So, how do you connect those two things—the creative with the thing that pays the bills? In, in
1: my case, it just comes. It comes again, again down to this Chinese technique thing. I want to tell people about different types of Chinese so it's food your story. and the different ways to cook it's, it, it.
0: It's, it's, it's this mission that you're on to, yeah. to to be known for the guy that has the technique
1: yeah to learn and to like tell not only to, to, to display that technique in a way that's accessible to people which is why we do fast casual but also to display it in a way that's interesting and to interesting. have it like you know um, have that technique be constantly in dialogue with some other thing
0: I got you. So let's let's rewind a little sure, bit. Sure. So when did you have the idea for Junzu and How did you make it happen? I mean, you're straight out of college. I mean, you're thinking about school loan debt, let alone <laughs> uh, getting the capital to open a restaurant. How would you pull it off? Um, one, uh,
1: the Junzun story is a little bit odd. It's not very sort of typical for restaurant openings,
0: which is why I'm here. i I'm yeah. <laughs> So the, the
1: the um the founders um and I um we. Um, we're all Yale students. Most of them were doing their PhDs and master's degrees, but I was an undergrad. And when they were thinking about this, um, you have to understand where they came from. So they came uh, to the U.S. to get their higher education in, you know, environmental science and graphic design and all these things, right? Um, and the idea is, if you get good in the U.S., you would return to China and work in the government or something, and like rise in ranks and like, you know, affect China in a positive way and like impart good influence, right? Yeah. Um, but what we quickly realized was another way to do this is to do business in the U.S. And um, we came across this idea of the bing, which is a Chinese flatbread of types. And we realized we wanted to make this food because it, like, this bing didn't exist in the U.S. Um, it's, it's very much part of the founders' childhoods. Um, but it also was emblematic of a certain type of eating, which is to do with accessibility. It's got to do with eating every day. It's got to do with it being nutritious and healthy and such. So they came across this idea and said, okay, let's start working on this. But we don't know how to do business. Like, how do you do food business in the U.S.? So they franchised a couple of frozen yogurt stores. Or, you know, basic okay. accounting See, this is the stuff and like inventory and stuff, you know? Um, and then after a while, you're okay, I know how Wait, so you were yeah.
0: in school? You guys were still in school when the, you were franchising? The,
1: the three founders um, uh, were franchisees of. Uh, so Frozen did they Riverside. graduate ahead of you? Were, you, were Yes, they, yes. Okay, they're, okay. They're, they're, they're a little bit... Um, Older. That's okay, so to. they graduate. You're still in school. They like. They're like. Actually, they're still in school too. But they're doing their PhDs and master's okay. degrees. You know, They just for some reason, find all this time to like <laughs> open frozen yogurt uh, stores, are, right? So they do that for a while. What was the I, frozen yogurt place? Um, it was called uh, Froyo World. Okay. I'm um, one of those. I believe it might be Connecticut only. Okay. You know, one of those small things. You yeah. open one in North Haven in the mall, and like you learn basic. So where did they learn? Where did they get this idea that if you want to learn about the business, go enter a franchise? You find whatever the low cost. The, low, the easy entry point is low barrier of entry just try something out
0: so what, what well I mean you know probably how many employees do you need the, the yogurt place like one and then you just need the machines uh, like Yeah, like, to, to like charge yeah you
1: need the machines you need the recipe you need a bunch of like high school
0: students <laughs> yeah, okay yeah. Um, but that, that whole idea of getting in uh Getting involved with the franchise, right? right to learn systems, mm-hmm, processes, mm-hmm. procedures, yeah. structure, all the things that you, you would need to know, right? Uh, like, that's a beautiful way to get into the industry if you want to learn. And I, I recommend people doing that all the time. Absolutely. You got people taking photos. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> We're sitting in the dining room. You guys can probably tell the background noise, but uh, it's cool with me if it's cool with you, man. Yeah, absolutely. So, um,
1: so the franchise thing—that's like how you learn, like the, the basic business. Like, what does inventory mean? Yeah, you know, like, but, but the product itself is pretty straightforward. The branding is pretty straightforward because it's handed to you, so you don't have to innovate in those, you know, parts of the restaurant. You just learn how to run a decent, easy business. So right? how
0: long were they doing the franchise thing uh, before they... It
1: must have been a couple of years. Okay. Um, at least two or three, I think. So do
0: they sell their franchises to... Now they have, yes. Okay. And then, uh, so who... Do you, how many different partners are involved in this?
1: Um, so
0: there are three founders.
1: Okay. And then... Um, you and the two other people... No, so there are, th- uh, there are three... I don't really... Um, they were thinking about the Junza idea before I came on board, okay. so to speak. Um, but right now the team is actually like 20 people.
0: Wow.
1: All our architects and interior design. All partners. All in-house. Yeah, all partners.
0: So they all, you, yeah. all these people have equity in the business. Yes. Three locations, Three 20 location. people.
1: I know, it's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> so why did you take that approach?
1: So dialing back to what happened after the frozen yogurt okay. franchise is um, we participated in the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. Okay. Which is kind of a startup um, uh, 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 like incubator got gotcha. you to teach you how to you know run a startup and of course of course most of the people there are doing things like i don't know um, like biotech
0: apps apps <laughs> yeah. seaweed
1: farming you yeah. know like weird stuff like this we want to do um it. um exactly a restaurant. Um, and then we we want to open a brick and mortar Chinese restaurant you know <laughs> yeah. back in the day we would say this is we're calling it Chive because Chinese Chipotle is too obvious <laughs> right? so we um, like they get into this incubator and at an incubator what they teach you to do is branding marketing, they teach you how to write pitch decks, they teach you how to get funding.
0: I was going to say, you guys have a pretty strong brand, and yeah. every, it looks like you had the right people right. behind you to, to, to do this right, right, straight out of the gates. And that came from the startup?
1: The from, from the startup incubator, yeah. Okay. Um, there's a tiny amount of money they give you to keep afloat before okay. you open your business. But what you're really trying to do is understand how do I build a company for the long term. Okay. The reason why we have 20 people working you know, in the support center slash headquarters of a three-unit restaurant
0: <laughs> is so that we're ready to open the fourth one. Okay, and then the fifth and the sixth. But you and the didn't start with twenty people with equity in the business, did you? No, we started with seven. Seven.
1: Yeah. Okay. Is, and so we had our own marketing. We had our own interior designer even then.
0: And this is so while you're in the incubator. So this is while we're in they taught the to- they taught you to build the framework before you build the actual product. Absolutely. Why is and, that beneficial? Um, because um,
1: well, it depends on what type of business you like to run. If you're planning to open one really great restaurant, you wouldn't need to do that. If you're trying to build a brand as we are, because, the, again, the mission is let's bring Chinese food to, <laughs> to the American public in an accessible way. For that to happen, you have to have a certain number, amount of volume and, therefore, a certain number of stores. And to build a certain number of stores, you have to build the first restaurant in a very different way than you would build most first restaurants. Um, so scalability is something that we have in mind early on. And that learning what that looks like from a business perspective, you know, costs, um, how to hire and fire HR, um, your branding and marketing, your R&D processes, um, your intellectual property, all that stuff, you wouldn't think of as something that most first-time restaurateurs would need to know, but because we were surrounded by software dudes
0: yeah this incubator they're like feeding you knowledge and things to do this is the
1: way this is how to build a 21st century restaurant this is what I assume they might do in Silicon Valley and a lot of the new restaurants that we see as our peers and people that are role models for us Um, Dig In for example Sweet Green um, all these new fast casual brands. I was Do doing you something Chula? similar. Have you checked out Chula? In New Hampshire?
0: No, they're uh, actually in Virginia, I believe. But they uh, their concept is uh, Indian fast casual. Awesome. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce you. But th- their story is very similar yeah. to yours. And, and like she started with a Five Guys franchise to learn all about that. Wow, and then they got out there's Five a pattern here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she, I can't think of her name. It's escaping me right now. But I think you guys could be beneficial friends I'll be <laughs> happy to make an introduction anyway keep going I, I sorry no, no no I derailed you. no that's exactly uh,
1: I mean that's exactly what you're supposed to do today um if we were yeah if we were trying to build one great restaurant we wouldn't look the way we do now
0: so I mean just to kind of to, to kind of put this into perspective i've heard time and time again when people are scaling their businesses mm-hmm. right their businesses get too big for them to handle and it gets to the point where they're running around like, with it like a chicken with its head cut off because they just don't know which way to turn first so if you build these systems you build this framework first and the things are there the, the people are in place the processes and procedures are in place so you can scale into that and yes. you can absorb it it it's a much better smoother way of doing things but how are you paying seven people's salary from one location in the beginning? How did you pull that off?
1: Um, I mean, it comes from getting funding from the right type of people. So how would you get your funding? Um, we're a bit of an odd case because um, we're one of the few, if not first, companies slash restaurant brands in the United States that's trying to open multiple Chinese restaurants that say something about Chinese food in a way that hasn't been said about Chinese food in the US before and for that to happen for that mission to be accomplished for that dream um, a lot of Chinese investors who have a personal stake you know they feel like they want their food to be told in the US would want to help us out in that process
0: so because you have a unique mission that resonates with a certain demographic of people that want to contribute to creating awareness around their culture that they can get behind it. People can get excited about this. They would
1: give you the money to say, hey, I know you're going to operate a deficit for a little while, but keep it up. Do it properly. Do it well. And eventually that money will come back to your investors. Um,
0: So you have the first location. You opened that in 2015, yeah? 2015. Okay. Uh, how long did it take you to go to the second location? About a year. How did you know you were ready?
1: We built the first one thinking about the second one. Okay. Right. What do you mean um, by that? So perhaps a concrete example um, are recipes. Um, everything, all food basically can be good if it's salted enough, if it has enough acidity and you know, fat, and it's cooked to the right temperature. That's really easy to do if you're cooking all the food that everyone eats. A lot harder if you're teaching somebody else to do that every single day. Making good food is easy. Making it good 800 times a day is a lot harder. Keeping that in mind, we have to transform a lot of our recipes in terms of the technique with which we cook them into um, a, a scalable techniques for example a lot of Chinese cooking is based in woks we removed the wok from a lot of the picture except for the basic stir fries and used ovens which don't exist in Chinese cooking in order to get a standard flavor so that you can have this product every single day and it'll taste exactly the same. Um, That type of work we did very early on. We didn't have to do it, right? You could have done it in a pot the whole time. You could just hire a bunch of really great Chinese cooks, just have them make it. But that to us didn't seem like a viable long-term business model. So we spent a lot of time R&Ding in the test kitchen, trying to figure out how to do this with the equipment that a common sort of like American fast food restaurant would be able to
0: have it uh cons, something that can be done uh, what's the word i'm looking for um replicate replica repli- replica replicable repli- repli- i can't replicate. speak today <laughs> um you know what i'm trying to say yeah. you're laughing replicable. at me at right now but we got the point across so you, you can't just be good and tasty it has yeah. to be something that can be scalable yeah and it has um, to be
1: good and tasty every single day repli- no matter when that i don't record. know why this, this replicable?
0: is the rep- word yes thank you oh man you're it's welcome. embarrassing okay so um <laughs> so you from the very beginning you knew this was going to be a multi-unit operation Mm -hmm. uh, and you you were preparing for that from the very beginning what other things did you do to prepare uh, what things were you doing to be proactive to scale into this this multi-unit operation that's Mm -hmm. still only at one location
1: Um, one of the things that we yet to talk about is staff or your labor force Um, and when I first opened a restaurant here and I went back to China and told people about it um, a lot of cooks told me that Lucas, you're going to fail because uh, you uh, um, aren't using any Chinese cooks. If you're not Chinese, you don't know how to use a wok. <laughs> Only Chinese people know how to cook Chinese food. And I was like, what <laughs> are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. like, what are you talking about? But this is like a common belief, right? And, and you might imagine this would apply to many other cultures. Someone told me when they were teaching me how to make naan, they were literally teaching me how to make naan in a tandoori. And they said, uh, I mean you're pretty good, but you're not—you know—you're not South Asian, so I'm sorry about this. Like, you're not going to be as good as. What do you mean? But so, and when you're opening a you know, cultural ethnic restaurant, so to speak, that always happens. Um, but um, one key thing that we notice is we can't rely on uh, a Chinese labor force. Um, traditional Chinese restaurants are opened by Chinese immigrants, people who came all the way here to the U.S. in order to open restaurants and cook and things, because that was kind of one of their major industries. Yeah, that won't happen forever. I believe in opening um Chinese restaurants in the US with US labor. And that means we have to do a lot of the legwork and the innovation to teach somebody who doesn't didn't grow up grow up with Chinese food, who didn't eat Chinese food constantly, who didn't spend their whole life next to a walk, mm-hmm. to cook this food to the standard that I see as authentic. And that means we need to design procedures, we need to tweak equipment, we need to um write the the right training guidelines and figure out a big system of training people. So that that can scale with us. Your recipes could be bulletproof, even if scaled to a thousand. But that labor force, in my opinion, is... Even more important. Interesting.
0: So, one other thing I wanted to make sure we left time to discuss is the power of uh, collaborations. And you were kind of touched on it a little bit at night. You you do these pop ups, right? But you'll have guests come in, right? What's yes. the, the benefit of getting other chefs, other restaurateurs uh-huh. into your business? How is that served? Yeah.
1: You? So, I suppose it might be helpful to give everybody a little bit of background about how this usually happens. Um, it's this project has been called a lot of names um, up until today, but. Today we call it Chef's Table. And what Chef's Table is, is a five to seven course dinner that happens once a month at Junzi during fast casual service. Everybody else is eating their fast casual food and compostable bowls and suddenly there's a big table and people are eating with forks and knives and nice chopsticks and porcelain and that sort of thing. Those dinners are always my personal attempt to examine what the relationship between Chinese food and some other culture or some other technique is to give you a good example um, next week we're doing one on vinegar and Chinese food Um, last month we did one that was Italian food and Chinese food and that sort of thing and so we invite a chef that's a expert in the corresponding field that's not the Chinese cuisine because that's myself to collaborate on the menu that collaboration is a really good opportunity for me to learn about say Italian food or vinegar or whatever but it's also a really good way to expand the story that your restaurant is trying to tell. To say, "Hey, Chinese food actually touches Italian food in this interesting way that you didn't think about." Chinese food actually touches vinegar in this interesting way that you didn't know you you didn't think you wanted to know. So um, that's how it looks today, and it's kind of seamless. And we bring chefs in, we write a menu, we serve it for th- only like w- a week every month. Um, but back in the day, that was. Really, quite a, it was really quite different, I yeah. suppose.
0: Well, I mean, I th- I th- one thing that's really interesting about. Doing these collaborations and these pop-ups and inviting other chefs in is from a marketing standpoint. Absolutely, they're coming into your restaurant. If you can land somebody who has a really decent following, they're going to promote that. They're gonna they're gonna share what they're doing with their tribe in your mm-hmm. restaurant, and all those people are gonna be like, "What's this Junza place? Like, I gotta check that out." You know, like, and it's a good way to to basically attach your brand to other successful brands in your city or your your state or whatever, <laughs> and to, to collaborate, to work together, yeah. to support one another. Uh, I think that's something. I mean, have you have you seen yeah. an
1: Impact or absolutely um, for a lot of brands, what you want to one way we define a, a, a helpful collaboration is if two brands that work together to produce an event or a product, if that result is bigger than the money you could have made by combining forces, there's something like sort of like spiritual and extra above the coin that happen just because you collaborated that would be super cool my favorite example of a successful collaboration based on brands is um you know snoop dogg and martha stewart yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like totally separate communication channels but somehow they come together and make something even better every collaboration i want to do should hit that martha stewart snoop dogg collab it's like (laughs) why is this italian dude working with this chinese chef like those two cuisines have nothing to do with each other yeah yeah and you're like wait there's actually some interesting history going on. Yeah, There's there things cool. I want to learn S- and
0: stuff. So how do you find your potential uh, co- collaborative people, the people that you invite in? I um, really
1: um, personally really like uh, to work with other chefs um, and other brands who have something to teach, not only myself but my staff. Okay, um, I see these collaborations as a really good chance for um, uh, both teams on both ends of the collaboration to learn from each other. Um, that cr- most often comes... Uh, in the form of a cross-cultural collaboration. So um, I can show somebody a cool Chinese cleaver technique and they can show me, oh, this is how you do kachetori <laughs> properly. You know? See what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so I'm curious, what if this person that you're reaching out to is like a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, somebody who's got a big reputation and they're popular. How do you approach yeah. them? What, what technique? Yeah. How do you extend that invitation?
1: Um, uh, well, humility is really important in the industry, I think. Um, you never want to walk into a collaboration saying, hey, I, 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 I'm the best thing in the yeah, world. Yeah, you want to do you this because I'm going to be the best thing stuff.
0: that ever happens Exactly, to you. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's
1: pro- you probably aren't. You know? <laughs> but you do want to um, – but part of that comes back to learning, to tell them, hey, this is what I want to learn from you. Ah. This is what we – you can get out of it, be straightforward to the point point. say this is... So polish the ego. Yeah. You're,
0: like, You're amazing. You're the guy yeah, that exactly. like, I would be so honored.
1: And that's wh- that's how <laughs> I, I mean, that's how I learned to cook, right? I was backpacking through Japan and I was like eating at restaurants I'd like to eat at and I said, hey man, this is the best
0: curry I've ever had can I wash your dishes? Yes. Right? Oh, man, I love it. Don't ask. Yeah. Ask, like, ask Like ask how you can give. Like yeah. How can I repay you for this most incredible yeah, exactly. uh, curry I've ever had? And right. when you come from that angle of I want to return the yeah. favor, yeah. well, guess what? It's it's tick for tack, right? Yeah. Uh, they give you an incredible experience. You return the favor by becoming a person of value to them, mm-hmm. and then when you return that favor, it's time for them to, re- to you know, the, the pendulum swings back the other yes. way. And you can't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, like, benefit me mm-hmm. like you just ate their food like they, exactly. y- they already benefited like what Absolutely. now what can you do in return right um i, I, I can't <laughs> help so i won't mention any names but somebody uh called we had a call today with somebody who mm-hmm. i do these one-on-one chats mm-hmm, and this mm-hmm. person uh he reached out to me and he said hey eric like i'm having trouble finding a manager i have this idea for a concept and uh, nobody will help me mm-hmm. like nobody nobody will help me do this and i'm like thinking to myself I'm, like okay. who are you helping to yeah. to get help you know yeah. what i mean like how uh-huh. like how are you being a person of value to others so they'll be they're willing to be a person of value to you It's the only thing Absolutely. i could think of and then i, mean, I don't that's want to, like crushes dreams
1: that's what makes the industry like the food industry so great is everyone is like in it together and everyone's constantly willing to help you just have to lay out the terms and say hey this is what I need specific help on this is yeah. how it's going to happen and this is how we'll replay, pay you Yeah. Um, and more often than not um, I, I, I think most chefs are willing to learn cool things and if you can show them something cool they'd be more than happy to teach you in return so Lucas what's the future look like man and what, how big do you want to take this thing like what what matters to you in the long I mean run? we're doing it step by step um, I know um, we're about to open our fourth restaurant Near Bryant Park, Midtown in New York City, that's quite exciting. And then we're looking at a couple other locations and concept that way. I personally am just mostly excited. Um, the way I keep myself sane and uh, excited about everything is, I'm just excited for next week, man. <laughs> Doing this cool vinegar <laughs> yeah. dinner, like it's gonna be so nerdy. It's gonna be so specific. I just tasted a black snail vinegar that's aged eight years. Literally made from like a snail. <laughs> That's going to be really exciting, um, and, and those little creative things, as, as you say, those collaborations, are that's what like breaks the mold, and that's the stuff that um, I think um, is the creative energy that we need to keep doing. So daytime you've got stuff.
0: twenty people on staff or um, partners right sure. now. Yes. Um, how m- how many restaurants do you think you need to open to make it worth their while, so everybody can yes. sustain a reasonable lifestyle?
1: There are um, there are a couple of formulas. Um, one of the main ones for metropolitan areas is you want one restaurant per million people okay so in new york that looks something like 10 you know in yep. the main areas um so that's when you hit market saturation and then that i think is a good benchmark for how are most you cities.
0: how are you determining where the next location
1: goes data there's a lot of um uh, careful mining of demographics and looking at competitors and, you know, real estate valuations and things. So which key elements are you looking at when you're looking at this data? Um, our restaurant is a little peculiar because we're a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we need a certain percentage of uh, people who consume Chinese food or Asian food um, regularly. So we have to make sure that we're campuses like the ones we are right near we're near NYU right now. And that's a good idea. Um, but Bank of China, for example, is a great campus. So I noticed oh, and that and I
0: wrote that down. Uh, yeah. I had... Um, Oh, uh, I need to get better, uh, Tunerman. What's his What's his first name? Uh, Paul Tunerman on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible dude. And uh, we talked about while, while he was uh, on the show uh, the approach of going into universities mm-hmm. first to test your concept, especially if your target market is a younger generation. Uh, because sometimes you can go in, the frameworks are the the, the overhead so low, like the the university will front right. the bill to cover all sometimes yeah. like of the the physical overhead that you need, and it's also gr- like those are your early adopters, right? If you can get college kids... And they'll hooked, go off to
1: wherever else and remember they're the they... are the cool kids. That they, that, that's
0: yeah. where everybody follows that mm-hmm. demographic. Yes. Um, was that what you guys were thinking going that's into the process?
1: absolutely part of it. The other part of it is we're making sort of like proper Chinese food that I assume most um, Chinese students that are here in the U.S. now um, like miss to some degree. That's the food that they grew up with,
0: right? Yeah. So that's part of the... That's part of um, what we're hoping to do also. So uh, how many... When do you know it's time to go outside of your city?
1: (sighs) I wish there was a hard formula for it. Um, But certainly, one is when you hit market saturation, so that one store per million people. Um, In New York, I think after that, you should really be entertaining other areas. And um, for us, a lot of it is the, the story comes first. If the brand has grown beyond the number of people who consume it, so more people are talking about your restaurant than people who are actually coming. In a good way, right? Then maybe you can think about where are those people talking about your restaurant and your brand and your ideas, and from there you could say, "Oh, maybe LA is a interesting city. It has a decent Asian yep. population, you know, that has college students or whatever you need for your specific business to succeed." Boston, like Boston, DC, yep, right. Even places like Austin, right, yep, or Seattle. Gotcha. Like, that's that's when you start thinking. But I think something we touched upon earlier that is worth bringing up now is. What you can really screw up is if you go too big too quick
0: well, that was my next question. i'm happy you're bringing that up because I think what you guys have is something special there's a lot of really great energy behind this brand and it's because it's raw it's authentic it's genuine Thank it, you. It, you know and that's what we need. We need more brands like that in the industry but how 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 long do you think you can keep that energy going at the more locations you open because every yeah. new location you're going to be diluting and you know to stretching that a little sense, bit more right, so yeah. h-
1: what's your plan to combat that um you have to make it, it comes but that it comes back down to basics like every single unit even if you own a chain restaurant just has to be good you know um your food needs to be good the people who work there need to be kind the f- you should never run out of food should be clean. It should feel comfortable. All of those things. You just have to do everything you can to maintain those standards um, and not let it slip at any one of your locations. Um, I think seeing it as a dilution is dangerous uh, because then you'll tell yourself, you know what, just a little bit of a, a couple of B and a minuses here and there, you know, just like, you know, inevitable slip in quality. But no, 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 that's like, I don't think that's good enough, um, especially in today's age when most new chain restaurants are run that such excellent
0: quality and done so well got gotcha. so i've asked all the questions i have for you uh but i want to make sure there there isn't anything that's not left on the table so is there anything you want to discuss or anything that we haven't tapped on yet that you want to bring to the discussion before we move on to the speed round the speed round sounds fun though. But... <laughs> so we, we're good to wrap it here i think so all right we'll take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with CashflowTool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. CashflowTool.com is simple, Powerful and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry, with an estimated 40 billion in losses in the US in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the US EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get at three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there recording again we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit of trade a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success curiosity probably I'll say just doing it, too. Not being just afraid to take it. a risk, man. You, you just Nike get after it. That. You can't really say that anymore. <laughs> yeah, right? That might get mad. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Uh, your biggest weakness? Uh, there's too much fun stuff out there to do. so distracted easy to get easily. distracted. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that, man. What's one question you ask or thing that you look for during the interview process? So when you're building your team, like right. what qualities oh, I see, I see, are you looking for?
1: Um, yeah, Curiosity. Go back to the first one. Nice. Absolutely. Lying. They want to learn.
0: What is your biggest challenge today?
1: Making sure that everybody who works at all our restaurants is as happy as they can be and as excited as I am to be here.
0: How are you dealing with that challenge?
1: You have to make the stuff they do every single day as easy and as straightforward as possible. But you also have to make sure that there's new stuff that they're excited about all the time.
0: Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is like a core value, a way to be, a way to conduct yourself.
1: We were joking before this that the qualities don't screw up. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but I think yeah I think that really that, that's the mentality we like to go into before service like hey everything we've done has built up to this moment don't screw it up
0: so how do you um, have that that, uh, that type of culture without having it be kind of negative right because there's a lot of pressure yeah. to not screw up Yeah. but how do you keep it light um, I mean I I, I I guess the "don't screw up" thing is—you know—we're we're
1: still kidding. It comes—it <laughs> it comes, it comes down to kindness. It's always going to come down to goodness and kindness. But don't screw up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the nicest place in the world. Everyone's going to support each other as long as we don't screw up.
0: <laughs> what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? A way to take the the hospitality, the service to the next level. Um, One thing we like to assume, especially at Junzi, is that
1: everybody is as confused as they can be when they walk into a restaurant. Why is it a good thing? Because, um, because you'll take the extra couple of steps in your head to figure out why they're, like, what their questions are, what they need to be comfortable, and what that distance is. I want all of my staff to understand how big of a challenge it is to serve the type of food that we serve. To, to serve the type of customers that we have who don't understand why in the world we want to serve them northern Chinese food in the first place. Mm. Why is there a dish on the menu called chive ash? You know, and, and so taking those couple of steps to realize those things in your head as, a, as somebody behind the counter really helps for the customers to feel at ease and at home when they come into Jinzu.
0: I dig it, man. Uh, what is one book to make us a better person or a restaurant operator?
1: I have this theory that all the books cooks should be reading should have nothing to do with the food industry at all. Basically, like if if we plotted it on a graph, it should be perpendicular. Yeah, because if you read about philosophy and art and and, and chemistry, those things will enhance you as a well-rounded human being and make you interesting enough that I think it will end up
0: trickling into or the way human you do behavior, which is something that had me really interested about you. Oh, and I your see. background, I forget this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is that one book that you have? Um,
1: I mean, I have a degree in um, cognitive science. Uh, which is a little bit of neuroscience and uh, philosophy. But um, uh, one of the really important things about cognitive science is understanding human behavior and how that comes about and how people um, uh, think about things and, so, how they, yeah, and how they behave and why they do such. So why is that so important? Um, well, it... It helped you understand where. um, It helped you empathize, right? It helped you realize where people are coming from and like what. Especially in
0: this industry, it's all about people. At the end of the day, this hospitality—it's about relationships. It is, and relationships is all about cognitive behavior, right? How how people we're tribal animals. You know, we need one another. We there's a lot of shit going on between two people that are engaging with each other, and when you understand what's happening in the head, you can you can like it's like understanding how the engine of a car works you hear a little tinkering going on you're like oh that's just this Uh like i can ignore that because i know exactly what's happening in my head right now
1: and i wish after all those years of school i could sit here and tell you this is how the human brain works (laughs) as it relates to the restaurant industry but that's something we're still trying to figure out every single day that is
0: something that's really interesting to me too and uh i don't know like if i were to pick a niche a a lane i'd love to go into that lane of like cognitive behavior human Mm -hmm. behavior Apply to hospitality. Like, what's going on in the human brain when we're being hospitable to somebody? Like, that would be really cool. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, moving on. Wait, you didn't even give us a book yet. What's the book? um, I mean, there's so (laughs) many great books. Um, The first one that uh, comes
1: to mind is uh, a recent book, um, not uh, not too recent. Um, It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by one of my favorite behavioral psychologists um, or behavioral economists. His name is Daniel Kahneman.
0: Thinking Fast and Slow. slow. Uh, Um, It outlines basically
1: your two systems of thinking your fast one that's a little bit instinctive and your rational one um, and I mean it's a fascinating book just broadly in terms of how people behave in markets and such but I think a lot of it applies to restaurants
0: yeah um, Malcolm Gladwell talks a little bit about that in his yes. book Blink mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the good in just making split decisions because your, your gut will guide you but at the same time we are rational people and there is that is our evolutionary benefit right mm-hmm. to be rational to think ahead to project Yes. So where is the balance? Is that what that book's about? Basically, yes. Oh, man, I'm interested in that. So the next question I have for you is, what is one tool you wish you had uh, when you first got into this that you have now, but you wish you had it back then? Um, I mean, uh, notebooks.
1: Um, I have a notebook and a pen in my hat all the time, everywhere I go. (laughs) You never know when some creative idea is going to hit you. You never are going to know if you're going to forget something that you have to buy for the store. Later. I, I use
0: Evernote for that. I have that on my computer and on my phone, and I'm constantly making notes. And if I have an idea or whatever, like an idea for an episode or an idea for a business or whatever, like, I write it down. Evernote is a great
1: um, app for that, Absolutely. This post is not sponsored by everyone. Um But um, <laughs> I, I mean, I like to carry around a notebooks. Um, I especially notebooks because when you're talking with another chef, when you're collaborating, yep. you can give them the pen yep. and tell them sketch me the dish you're thinking about. Oh, that's cool! Tell me about like write down this menu right now. Um, and and, and that's a really cool little exchange that you can have.
0: I love it. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or do often enough?
1: I wish... Um, sometimes in terms of just cuisine, I wish um, a lot of restaurateurs uh, took more risks and were more able to and um, willing to adopt techniques from other cuisines into their own. Um, fusion is an interesting but unfortunately unsatisfactory word. And if we come to the point where we realize that all food is fusion, then we'd be way quicker to yeah, adopt other techniques. Yeah, unless you pulling
0: into, a right. apple straight off the tree. Yeah. These, <laughs> uh, I mean,
1: like, for example... Um, these days, um, fusion isn't about you know uh, pork belly tacos, like Korean pork belly tacos anymore. It's about understanding something like oh, Korean fermentation with koji, and then integrating that into your menu. That like let's say you open a new American place, but you can use those techniques in a subtle way just to inform your cookie yeah, and it's make it's, it's a higher quality. Yeah,
0: that's dish. cool. Um, okay. We're almost done. What's one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a positive influence on either communication, operations, efficiency, profitability, something of that nature that you're really excited about, technology? Um, we have a little app that allows everybody to chat um, and text
1: um, for when they're coming into the shift and they're a little bit late, or if they have questions about anything, or if we have um, new training guidelines or materials that we want to release, we What's can that release app? on it. It's called when I work. Oh, cool! And it's a, it's great for tracking when people are clocking in and clocking out, but also just for general communication, especially where so many youngins work yeah. with us, and everyone prefers to texting to the call. Gotcha. Um, it's a good first defense.
0: Beautiful. This is the last question. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom three things you know to be true about your success and the good, and something that will be like left for the good of humanity in your legacy what would those things be um,
1: the first is that especially in the restaurant industry the most important virtue is kindness and empathy kindness and empathy what's number two the second probably is I know it's 2018 but don't knock high heat cooking Produces really interesting results. Super high heat cooking, grilling, and wok cooking specifically. What's number three?
0: Chinese food is pretty good. (laughs) Chinese food. Keep cooking it and keep thinking about it. Don't forget about kindness and empathy. Don't knock high heat cooking in chinese foods pretty good awesome man thank this you so been a much great Eric. conversation we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out so who's one independent operator somebody you admire and look up to in this industry and believe would make a great Ooh. guest mentor on the show
1: oh my goodness give me one second you think about it. there's so many give me two okay. um i love nick from Sue green I think what they do at Sweetgreen as a fast casual concept is incredible. I think they're industry trailblazers and they've really set the tone. And there's parallels between them and us because they started when they were kids in school as well.
0: Nick from Sweet Green, man, look out, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. They're actually on my radar, so I would love to get them on the show too. And let the folks at home know how can we connect with you if we want to follow you on Instagram, if we want to follow the brand on Instagram, or maybe uh, come join your team. We want to come learn from you. What's the best way to connect?
1: Absolutely. DM us on Instagram. Um, Our tag is at Junzi Kitchen, J U N Z I Kitchen. And if you want to DM me, you know, personally, Lucas.sin, L-U-C-A-S dot S-I-N. I'd love to take your DMs.
0: All right, I'll have that information in the show notes. I'm not sure what episode number this is, but I'll make sure to mention it during the closing thoughts. You can find a link to everything we discussed or anything that was recommended over there as well as a summary of today's discussion. And again, Lucas, Sin, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge, your advice. Too kind of you. Your mentorship. (laughs) There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you so much. Have a good (laughs) one. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable, Lucas Sin. Wow, what a great conversation. Really, this episode was littered with tons of great advice. I don't even know how I'm going to choose to just narrow down a few big takeaways from today's conversation. But I think the big takeaway, obviously, just start. Just do it where wherever you are. You can start, and Lucas Sin is proof of that. 16 years old, he just did it. He he opened a restaurant in an abandoned mill in Hong Kong, and he just did it. And when he was in Yale, uh, he just he just started. And you know, do it do it now, and and look for forgiveness later. Right? Don't let anything stop you from just starting. Uh, you need to build that momentum, and when you build that momentum, you can start developing relationships. You can start be- developing a following and then i love how he said you know open a restaurant in the city that is you know dearest to you uh, it's all about relationships so if you can prime the engine with relationships and start building those relationships that's the cool thing about just starting wherever you can it's all about relationships and nothing stopping you from developing those relationships as soon as possible and then also i really love the conversation around scalability right if you if you have the intention to scale your restaurants then treat your little restaurant like a big restaurant put the framework in place now so you can grow into it so you don't grow beyond your means and then you start scrambling and uh, service and quality goes down because of it put the elements in place and grow into those elements uh be, and don't scramble to adapt to the world around you. uh, Be proactive. And I really love this idea of developing a mission that people can get behind. So Lucas isn't just opening a restaurant. He's trying to bring awareness to his passion, Chinese food, right? And how great Chinese food is. And when you create a mission that other people can get behind other people can be proud of. So in this in this circumstance, other Chinese people, other Chinese Americans, people that want to share their culture with the rest of this country, uh, and has something to be proud of. Like there are well-off successful Chinese people living in this world and they're going to get behind this mission. So create something that investors can get behind and want to get behind. You'll have a better Go at it when it's time to get that that capital, that initial capital to get started. Awesome stuff today. Um, Guys, like always, please do reach out to me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They really help with the podcast getting found on those platforms. Uh, But the best way to support this podcast and this mission of inspiring and empowering and transforming our industry is by sharing it. So if you know of somebody who's out there who is looking to come up in this industry or looking to to make their restaurant better, put this podcast on their radar. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.